0: Uh, you have your Bible. Hopefully, would you join me and those of you online? Thank you for watching even now, whether live or, or on a recording. Uh, would you get your Bible? In whatever form you have it there, turn to Matthew 18. I think this is perhaps our fourth message in this chapter. I think it'll be the fourth out of five. I'm going to assume we'll do the last 15 in one setting. Uh, I don't know why we wouldn't standing here right now, but I haven't got into it yet. Matthew 18. Today we're going to look at six verses and let me begin um, by mentioning that about a couple of hours ago I got a a text from someone that's in here right now and I just appreciate that text for multiple reasons but one of which was that they said they'd had specific prayer uh, this week knowing the content of what we're getting ready to study and just how difficult it can be And I just appreciated them having that forethought and and making that a matter of prayer and importance. Um, I'm going to preach the text that is before us, but I do so with some concerns, right? I have some concerns, so I'll share two or three of those concerns. One, not the least of which, is this one. I have a concern, by the way, God is sovereign, and we're going through the book of Matthew and this is the words of the Lord Jesus and it is ultra important and we need to heed it and we're going to put weight on it this morning. But the thought crosses my mind, Jeff what if someone is not yet a Christian? and what if they just have never really been to your church or never really logged on? and this is the first message they're going to hear. Uh, if you have an idea where we're heading in the text, I uh, My concern is I don't want anyone to think that this text is the whole of Christianity. It is not the whole of Christianity. But we're not going to bump it to the back of the bus either as if it's unimportant. This is part of Christianity. My second concern is that it is a neglected part of Christianity. And I just go ahead and tell you, when I preach, I have as a goal, I want the Lord to speak and I want the Lord to use the text to change me and to change us. And I don't think Christians have a very good track record of paying much attention to what we're getting ready to look at, and I have a little bit of a fear that we're gonna preach on it, and hopefully it'll be accurate, that's my desire. But even if we were to preach it accurately, I have a little bit of a fear that some folks are just gonna go, yeah, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I was gonna tell you right now, I like all the other stuff, I'm not doing that, that's not who I am, I'm not doing that. And we'll be in disobedience if we do that. My third concern is if we were to go out of here, okay, wow, This is in the Bible. This is the words of Jesus. We need to do this, but if we go out and do it the wrong way with the wrong spirit, we'll actually end up making a bigger mess of things than if we didn't fulfill the text. And so this is tricky today. We need to look at it accurately, get the spirit of it all, and not just the nuts and bolts, but really get the tone and the heart of the Lord and and why he does this. Uh, You're in Matthew 18. In a moment, we're going to read verses 15 to 20. Um, It's not a hard text to, like, what does it mean? It's not that hard. It just needs kind of stated, let out of the box, and then we need to adjust our lives and start putting it into it. Um, Just before I read, so this is all one long discourse of Christ. Chapter 18 is Jesus talking to the disciples. I'm not going to revisit all of it, but do you remember last week, here's what we noted. We are never to despise, look down on any of God's people. No Christian is to look down or despise another of God's people. We we went over like seven reasons. I don't remember all of them. The way they look, how old they are, how long they've been a Christian, their lack of knowledge. Maybe they've got some wrong beliefs. Again, their lack of possessions. Maybe they have a personality that's not very aggressive and it's kind of real meek and mild. Don't look down on those folks. But the really big one, again, maybe it's their race. Their race. It could be their style of things, appearance. Don't look down on that. But the big one was, in context last week, if a believer is out in sin, don't despise the Christian who's in sin. And don't you take a superior downward look at them in your countenance or in your words. This is not a, an above. We're up here looking down on them. We're never to despise. Why? They're so valuable. All of God's children are so valuable that God has assigned angels to serve them. They're that valuable. Number two, Christians are so valuable that even when they get out in sin, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, God the Father, will do what it takes to go and bring them back and even discipline if it takes that. They're so valuable that God has determined His will is that none of His true children will ever perish and go to hell. They will not do it. And so today's text is continuing our not despising, but it's going to show one of the ways... That God comes and gets His straying sheep and brings them back to the shepherd. And we alluded to it last week that God uses people often to do that. So with that in mind, here's our text, verse 15. Jesus says, If your brother, the idea of your brother or sister in Christ, these are Christians, you're a Christian. This is a message to Christians. If your brother sins against you, Talk more about those two words in this moment. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. That phrase, tell him his fault, is actually a strong word. I'll go and tell you what it means. Confront him. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, the idea... You're reconciled. He repents. Things are restored. Harmony is brought back. Peace is, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The idea of gain there is like you win. You won. You've gained like money, but you win. You've gained your brother. If he listens to you, go just you and him. Verse 16. But if he does not listen, just you and him, he doesn't listen. Take one or two others along with you. Why do they need to go? You're going to go back. Why? Why do they need to go? That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So it's not just you saying what they've done or not done. Now there's you and another one or you and two more, two or three witnesses. And that lines up perfectly with the law in the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. So you take one or two witnesses. Verse 17, though, and again, same idea, though it's not stated If he listens to you and the witness or the two witnesses, then you've gained your brother. That's implied. But verse 17 now says, if he refuses to listen to them. That tells me, oh, they're talking. They're not just listening. They're not just watching these witnesses actually talk if needed. If he refuses to listen to them, well, there's the next step. Tell it to the church. Tell it to the church, to the assembly. To the assembly of God's people is the idea. And, again, what's implied there? If he listens to the church, then you've gained your brother. But there is this, if he doesn't, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, what Jesus is saying there is you'll treat this person. Jesus is not saying, I want animosity between my people. That's not what he means. He's saying if it gets to that point and they still won't listen to the church, then you will let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector, in other words, how the Jews of his day treated and put distance between Gentiles and themselves, or tax collectors who were like the most hated in the land because they were looked at as crooked, how they would distance themselves from them, then that's how you're going to respond as a church. Now, verse 18, I'll go ahead and tell you, I'm going to spend a lot less time on verse 18 to 20 than we will on 15 to 17, because I believe my interpretation, when I looked at it, I believe this is the interpretation. Verse 18, 19, and 20 are all supporting of the first three verses. These six verses stay together of of a thought. I'll say more to that in a little bit. So verse 18, truly, can the church do that? I mean, do do Christians have the right? I mean, that's really, they they don't need to be doing, I don't know what Jesus is thinking here. I read one commentator who actually questioned the whole text of this saying, uh, we're sure that this doesn't belong in the Bible and it was put in there by man because Jesus would never say these words. Barclay does the dumbest thing sometimes. Oops. Anyway. And then he says some good thing, but sometimes he does want to like, what are you? Verse 18. Truly, I say to you, what, who's he talking to? The disciples in context. But now we know that he's brought up the church in verse 17. So the church is to do this on what grounds? Verse 18. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. If you've been here for months, that should sound familiar. Verse 19, again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I. Among them, Would you notice, number one, this morning, we have two main ideas. We're going to spend most of our time on the first one. Number one, would you notice, Jesus prescribes how to reconcile. Jesus prescribes how to reconcile. What do we do when a brother or sister in Christ is in sin? Now, I need to point out a couple of things. I hope you get everything that is said today. I hope you're, the Lord will help you really pay attention. Um, I don't want to harm your idea of the text, but I need to point out a couple of things right out of the gate. Would you look at verse 15? The Bible here says, the ESV translation says, if your brother sins against you. I need to tell you that there are some early manuscripts that did not have those words against you. And so if you'll look at it a couple more times, let's look at it again and see, you know, you say, Jeff, should the words against you be in there or not? I can't tell you 100%. The ESV puts them in here. Some people translate it without that in there. And ultimately, what I'm going I'm to conclude, where I've concluded, is it doesn't ultimately change the effect of the text. It just kind of puts a little different shade on it. Let's read it both ways. Hear it again. If your brother sins, go and tell him his fault. And I'm going to contend that is New Testament. So listen, if your brother sins, if if we don't have the words against you, because if you had the words against you, then it kind of sounds like, well, I only have to do this if it's against me. So you can take it as against you. If they do it to me, okay, then I might think about these steps. But actually, the New Testament message is, if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault. Go and confront him about it. So yes, some omit that. Either way you look at it, I want you to write this note down. This passage is ultimately and mainly about purity within God's family because there's a reason. It's about purity in the family because unchecked sin spreads like leaven. You're actually going to see that a little later in a text in 1 Corinthians. Unchecked sin that is allowed among Christians inevitably is like leaven. You take a little piece, a sized piece of leavened dough, put it inside a large lump of unleavened dough, and that leavened dough is going to permeate and go through. Unchecked sin among God's people just permeates. Listen carefully. If there's known sin and nothing's ever done about it, more and more people are going to start committing the same sin. It's going to permeate through. It must be okay. And you're going to have the weakest ones start leaning that way. So by saying that, what I want to get out in the open and at the beginning is this text is not so much about the offended person being able to vent their displeasure or get some satisfaction. That's not the tone of this. You did that to me. I got Bible. You're going to pay. Get down on your knees and ask for my forgiveness. And then I'll think about it. That is not the tone of this text. It's about purity, the whole spirit is, we've got a brother, and so you say, but this person's offended. Right, we want that person not to be offended. We want to get them healed and whole. But ultimately, you've got a brother or sister who's in sin. They need to get out of sin. That's the main idea. We'll take a note on this later. I'm going to plant the thought now. Verse 15, what the Lord is saying is, listen carefully. The spiritual wel- welfare of other Christians is the responsibility of all the Christians that are in their life. Let me say it again. The spiritual welfare of other Christians is the responsibility, in part, to all of all the other Christians who are in their life. So we can't just say, ah, that's not my business. Second thing we need to note, look at verse 15. If your brother sins, would you write this down? This is important. I wish it didn't need to be said, but I think it does. This step and these actions today speak of actual sins. Actual sins. You say, what do you mean? Actual? Not annoyances. This is not speaking about something that irritates you. Man, I finally got a verse. And that brother or sister in Christ, they do something that irritates me. That totally annoys me. They don't have my little rules. And I'm going to go tell them about my... No, this is not about your personal way you live life and your little rules and your do's and don'ts and your personal standards that don't have specific backing in the Scripture, and they don't live by that, and so you're going to go hammer them with Matthew 18. It's not about that. This is about sins. And so what you need to be thinking is, when I go and confront them, can I point to a passage of Scripture that is very clear that they have sinned against me? And if not, then you need to change, and you need to show grace. Sproul, I think, gives a very important quote. I'm going to borrow it. Here's what he writes. So listen. He writes, It is important that we distinguish between an offense given and an offense taken. It's important we distinguish an offense given and an offense taken. They're two different things. I read that. I'm like, what in the world is he talking about? Later on, here's what he writes. If I insult you, slander you, or lie to you, I certainly give offense to you. However, you may or may not take offense against me for such things. Did you catch it? If, let's say, I insult you, slander you, lie against you, I've given offense, but you know what you may do? You could, literally, if I insult you, you could be bigger than me and just like, I'm not going to get insulted. I'm not going to take offense at that. Uh, that's, that's just that, that person's way Um, Maybe they had a bad day, or I don't think they meant that. And you literally just choose to let it slide off. That's what he's talking about. So someone has committed a sin, but you may be so big and so gracious and so full of love that you're just not going to take offense at it. And somebody else might like, do you know what they just said to you? Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. I've had worse said to me. It's okay. I love them. You're not going to go tell them? No. I love them. Wow, you're weird. All right, he continues. Now, here's the flip side of that. He says, likewise, this is important, I may say or do something. By the way, that was sin. He says, likewise, I may say or do something to you that is not sinful, yet you find it offensive. In that case, I did not give offense to you. You chose to take offense. And Sproul went on to talk about messages that he's had to preach. And some people have gotten offended at things he said, but he was telling the truth. I'm just thinking today, what if I say something that is absolutely true and someone gets offended? If that's the case, i got to go where the text goes. You're not getting mad at me. You're getting mad at the Word of God. If I'm twisting the text and you get mad at me, you probably have a beef with me. And you'd have the right to let me know. But if I'm on safe ground here, your problem is with the Lord and not me. That's what he's talking about. That's the difference between offense given and offense taken. So here's where, before we dive in verse 15, here's what I want to advise us. Let's, Grace, for you, let's strive to be this kind of Christian. That we go through life so aware of God's continuous forgiveness of all of our sin. And let's be the kind of Christians who go through life so loving other people that we're not sensitive. I think before we dive in the text and where we're just constantly going, okay, I'm gonna, real, I'm gonna wear verse 15 out, right? Instead, become this kind of Christian. God forgives me of all of that, and I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. What if this is your stance? Can I truly let it slide, and it's not going to be something that harbors in my heart? Can I truly not look for the worst and assume the worst in the other person? Can I be quick to forgive? Can I overlook this? I mean, truly overlook it and let it go. That's what I think we should strive to be, that kind of Christian. And so right at the outset, can I ask you, and maybe the Holy Spirit would even put someone in your mind, is there someone who has done something to you and you're angry with them, but honestly, in the whole scheme of things, it is so small, so little, you really, like right now, you don't even need to talk to them, you just need to let it go, or it's your opinion, your preference, they irritated, they annoyed, but it's not sin, and you just need to like, I just got to let that go, I just have to let that go, I've been holding this grudge, is it time to let a grudge go? But there are some sins that actually need dealt with. And when that's the case, the Lord has laid before us, and I hear it carefully, a four-step process that calls for Christians to confront other believers about known sin. And that little phrase right there, the Lord is calling for a four-step process where He calls for Christians, that's us, to actually confront other believers about their known sin and this goes back to my second concern because I know as we start saying that there's some folks like yeah I don't want to do that. Why? Well I thought through a few reasons I won't go through them all. Here's one. Hear it. Just hear it one more time. If your brother sins against you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Think, when's the last time you did that? When's the last time? Who what was their name? I thought through, I came up with like five or six names, certain situations. Some of those, uh, it was something me, some of those, it was something done against someone else. I remember one situation many years ago, there was a whole group of people that were very, very upset. And I got nominated with another lady to go confront the person who was really making everybody, I mean, they were really upset. I mean, I can't say much more than that. Like, people ready to make drastic decisions, and they like, We're going to do it. Like, hold on. Let's first go talk to the person. And me and this other lady got nominated. And she didn't do hardly any of the talking. And honestly, I was shocked. We went through that. And I had my list of things. And literally, it was met with humility and apology. And the Lord ended up bringing healing. And drastic decisions were not made. But I remember other times where I did not. I did verse 15, but I didn't do it in the right spirit. And, I, and again, so I'm trying to learn to do better as I've gone through this myself. So here's what we hear. Okay, wait. Jeff, Jesus is saying that we as Christians are supposed to co- confront other believers about their sin. Here's some people's stance. Jeff, that is so foreign. That is unnatural. That sounds hard. Yeah, it is hard. That sounds risky. I'm not doing it. And that's what some people do. I'm not doing it. It's unnatural. It's, it's foreign. It's risky. It could turn bad so I'm not going to do it. Here's another one. Be very careful with this one. There's a thought that says, oh, I'm not going to do it because I don't want to come across as judgmental. And here's the way that sounds in the head. I got my own problems. Now this, again, this isn't so much where they've sinned against you. This is just, if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault. Well, I've got my own problems. I'm not perfect either. I'm not going to get involved. That sounds nice and humble. The only problem with it, it doesn't square with the New Testament. It doesn't square with the New Testament. So we're supposed to throw that one out. Unfortunately, the next two things are what I'm telling you. Most Christians, I believe most Christians do what I'm about to say rather than doing verse 15. Here's what they do. They let a root of bitterness start growing deep down in their soul. Someone does something against them, they let a root of bitterness. They don't go tell the person like Jesus clearly tells us to do. They don't confront them about their sin. Can't let it slide, can't let it go, can't look for the best. They've assumed the worst, and now here's this root of bitterness. You want to know what's even worse than that. Not only do they let the root of bitterness begin in the soul, I'm going to go ahead and say it. They're too cowardly to talk to that person about what they've done but they're very courageous to go talk to this other person that is totally unaffected by the sin and they just gossip to them. Oh, I don't want to go talk to them, but let me tell you what they've done. That's that's worse than what was done in the first place. That is sin and that needs to be repented of. That's where a lot of people are. And then there's this other one and it goes back to probably more if it wasn't done against me personally, it's this idea it's just not my business. And again, there'll be folks walk out of here this morning like uh, a situation will come up this week. An opportunity will be there. It should be taken in the right spirit. But someone's probably going to be like, yeah, I'm not going to do it. That's not my business. But is it? Hold your spot here. Go back where we were just last week, Galatians chapter 6. Look we'll go over to Galatians 6. I want you to see one verse there. Galatians chapter 6. Very, very clear. This is the Apostle Paul was indwelt and inspired by the same Holy Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ that was poured out on the church. Galatians chapter 6, look at verse 1. sounds a lot like what the Lord Jesus says in Matthew 18, except this time it is very clear that it does not have to be against you personally. Notice what he writes. Brothers, the idea of brothers and sisters. If anyone, the idea again, we're talking about brothers and sisters. If anyone is caught... It means they have fallen in this transgression. They didn't go looking for it. It has happened to them. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, you who are actually following the prompting of the Holy Spirit at the time because that person is not, the other brother and sister in Christ, they are fallen in a transgression, then very clear in the Bible, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Let me repeat what I said last week. That spirit of gentleness means they're in sin, they're hurting. I need to like set a broken bone, and I need to treat them how I would want to be treated if I were in that condition, if I was committing that sin. And by the way, the second part of the verse means this. I first need to understand I can't commit the sin that they're in. And if I'm in that position, how would I want someone to approach me? I need to go with that same attitude. Back to, well, in a moment I'll give you a different text. So, whether you take Galatians 6 or Matthew 18, would you write down this thought? Jesus makes the purity of each believer the business of other believers. That's not my business. Actually, it is. Jesus makes the purity of each believer the business of other believers. Indifference is not to be allowed. So if I could put it this way, our number one main concern, we are to be pursuing purity in our own heart and life. That's the number one thing. Matt, I'm not going to go there yet. Listen, Matthew 18, you remember a couple of weeks ago, if your eye offends you, if your hand offends you, if your foot offends you, be working on purity in your own life so that you will then be able to help the brother or sister in Christ who's fallen into sin. Y'all know as well as I do, it's not John three sixteen. What's the main verse that most unsaved, unsaved people know out of the Bible? Matthew 7, verse 1, and it says, Judge not that you be not judged. Doesn't the Bible say judge not that you be not judged? So your whole message up there is out of line. Oh, so what's said in Matthew 18 doesn't count because what was said in Matthew 7. I would tell that person, no, what you need to do is keep reading because what the Lord says is, It's about having a judgmental attitude, a judgmental spirit, censorious judgment. Don't be that. Don't have this superior looking down at the other person. Don't ever despise, but out of love and humility, reach out to the person. Because if you remember, he says, how can you have this log in your eye, talk to your brother or sister in Christ about the speck that is in their eye? He says, watch, get the log out of your own eye so that you can then help the brother or sister in Christ with the speck in their eye. What he's saying is don't ever discern and try to help. It's saying take care of your own self first so that you can help each other. That's what we Christians are called to do in a spirit of meekness and gentleness. So whether we're talking about Galatians 6 or Matthew 18, the goal is always restoration. The primary goal is not just about me venting. It's not about me getting satisfaction when I was wrong. It's ultimately about restoring unity in the body of Christ, being eager to maintain the unity, being eager to help our brother and sister who's unfortunately having to live in sin. Would you flip over just for a moment one verse, Romans 15. Flip over to Romans 15. I want you to look at verse 14. Romans 15. Look at verse 14. And after that, we're going back to Matthew. And look at these four steps. So the goal is restoration, not self-satisfaction. Paul is writing to a group of saints in Rome. In verse 14, he says, I myself... I am satisfied about you, my brothers, the idea of brothers and sisters. I am satisfied about you that, this is an important verse, that you yourselves are full of goodness, not on themselves, but because of Christ, the Holy Spirit, in their life. Now they're full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Read that verse again. Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with the knowledge and able to instruct one another. I believe you are able to instruct one another. So, what is that talking about? I'm going to have to give you, I think we've lost our signal there on the screen for a moment. Write this thought down. When believers, this is important, especially those of us who are members here, we just had 15 folks join us about a month ago, officially as new members. When believers align with a faith family, so looking at Paul's words here, he says I, I'm, when I look at you Christians there in Rome, you're full of goodness, you're filled with knowledge, you're able to instruct one another. What he's hinting at is when believers align with a faith family, they should see themselves as inviting other believers to hold them accountable. We hammered on this in our three weeks of new member classes. I tell folks, if you're just going to join Grace View and ultimately not going to really come and attend our services, don't join. Just come be, a, be a, an attender, a sermon listener, sing some songs. But if you're just going to slide in and then quit, don't even join. Why go through that? We don't need just more numbers on our membership list. But one of the, you say, well, I'm joining the church because I want to help spread the gospel. I'm joining the church because I want to use my resources to help make disciples. Great reasons. I want, I want a fellowship, and I want, to, I want to have all of that. That is wonderful. But by joining a fellowship and aligning yourself with a faith family, you, everybody who's a member here or thinking about becoming a member, here's what your mentality should be. I will do this because I'm inviting you to help hold me accountable. I want you to help hold me accountable. And, oh, by the way, if I'm doing my job, I should be helping hold you accountable as well. Paul tells the Romans he's confident that they are able to instruct one another. What does the word instruct mean? It has a meaning behind it. The word instruct means to admonish, to counsel, give advice. Think about this. Christians, you should hear this and say, wait, this is what the Lord is calling us to do. To be able to instruct, to admonish each other, counsel each other, give advice, give encouragement, give warnings to each other. Not in your list, but it actually means the idea even to give a rebuke if needed. Now, which Christians should strive to be able to do that? All believers should strive to become so familiar, know God and His heart so well, and His Word that ultimately, Literally, every Christian in here should be able to get to a point in your life where you can be depended upon to counsel other people and give them biblical advice, to advise them, to admonish them, to rebuke them, to warn them, to encourage them. There's a wide array of ideas in that word instruct. All of us should have that as a goal. Flip, if you would, back to Matthew 18. Let's go through these four steps. Again, nothing deep and theological here. Everything here is practical practical. And right on on the top of the text. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Number one. Tell them privately. Go and tell them privately. Someone is in sin and you know about it. Someone has sinned against you. What do you do? Tell them privately. But what you're about to write is so important. Make your goal. Everybody listen. As you're going, and by the way, I know I'm running a risk because if someone's listening and you're thinking, I'm not going to do this, <laughs> then you're already checking out and wondering where you're eating your Father's Day lunch. But if you're like, I really want to live the Christian life. I need to grow, I've not been doing this. I want to know what this is about. Then get the point of the first point here, the first step, go tell them privately, just you and them. But here has to be your goal is to win the brother, to win the brother or sister. Not to win an argument. And I'm going to give you a partial. I ran out of lines, I think, there at the bottom of the page, if I'm not mistaken. Wiersbe gave a great quote. Probably the best one I'm going to give you today. It's simple, but this is a great quote. Warren Wiersbe writes, Humility must come before honesty. I'm going to go confront my brother. They've sinned against me. I'm actually going to do it. Matthew 18, 15 says. I'm going. Humility... Must come before honesty. Now, here's what I did not have room to put on your handout. Wiersbe writes the following. A proud Christian cannot speak the truth in love. A proud Christian cannot speak the truth in love. Y'all help me out. I want to hear from you. A proud Christian cannot speak the truth in love. That is true. But a proud Christian can speak what? Truth. I know y'all are writing. Did you get what was just said? Even a proud Christian, oh yeah, I'm going to go tell them how it is. I'm going to shoot straight with them. I'm going to be honest with them. We're going to get honest. right? That's code for, I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. No, they don't need a piece of your mind. They need a piece of God's mind. A proud Christian cannot give the truth in love, though they can give the truth and end up making a mess of things and making it, worse. Don't be that kind of person. Before I hit the second one, can I offer some suggestions? Four things to prepare for. I want you to think of of a situation where someone has offended you and you were going to employ this. Can I offer you these four steps? Not, Not on your handout. Think of it this way. I'm getting ready to go talk to this person. What should be my attitude? Prepare for the possibility of four things. Number one, They didn't do it. Allow for that. I'm going to go talk. Hey, thanks for meeting with me. Yeah, what's this about? Yeah, you did this and this and this and that. Allow in your heart and mind they didn't do it. Because they very well might say, I did what? You heard I said what? Who told you that? That's what you did. Who told you that? And then if you have to go, so-and-so told me. If they start doing this, so-and-so, hang on, what you doing? I'm getting a call, so-and-so. Wait, wait, no, 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 what? Hey, yeah, I'm here with them. They said that you said that I did that? Right. Where did you hear that? What's their phone number? Yeah. I want you to send me their contact. Hang on, we're going to call them. Yeah. If that starts happening, you better get ready. You're probably getting ready to have to eat some crow. They didn't do it. Guys, if if I watch anything on TV, not anything. Most of the time, if I do, I'm watching sports. I cannot tell you how many times. I just know I saw something one way, and they do this thing called super slow-mo, and I was dead wrong. It didn't happen that way. Second thing you need to allow in your mind is they did it, but they didn't mean anything by it like what you thought they meant. They did not mean it to be hurtful. They did the thing, but they didn't. Boy, this sounds so cliche, and it would be funny if it wasn't true. They didn't talk to me at church. Do y'all know how many people get mad at somebody else because they didn't talk to them at church? Or they didn't look at them they didn't wave? Like, what if that's your big confrontation and you bring it out and you're like, yeah, last week, right before church, you were coming right down there, you talked to them and them and them, and then I was looking at you. And I was waiting on you to make eye contact, say something to me, and you didn't. What if the reality is that that happened just like you're thinking, but just then the announcements came up on the screen, and as they're up here talking to that person, announcements come on the screen, you look over at the announcements right when they go, Hey, how's it going? Anyway. uh, Oh, no, I waved at you. I smiled at you. I was going, but you were looking at the announcement. What? Allow that, yeah, I didn't talk to you. And it didn't go down, but it's not at all meant like you thought it was. Number three, this is important. This is the main one. Allow that when you go to them and lay the case out that they did it and they meant to hurt you by it, but your attitude of humility and wanting to help them wins them over and they apologize and seek forgiveness. You say, yeah, what if that happens? Oh, that's next week's message. It's real simple. You forgive on the spot. It is now done. That's what's supposed to happen. And then number four. They may have done it and meant to hurt you. And they're not broken by your humility and reaching out to them. And they remain unrepentant. And if that's the case, step two doesn't need to be moved into. Before we look at step two, can I just make a couple of statements? Simple. So much strife would cease if Christians would obey verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So much strife. You say, Jeff, I think it would actually make it worse. I don't think the Lord is telling us to do something that's going to make matters worse. If you go with the right attitude, you may not always win them back, and you may have to go to step two and three and ultimately step four, which we really don't want to get to. But step one would really solve a lot of pe- problems if people would go with the right attitude. Can I say it this way? There's probably someone sitting here this morning, or there are people that we know. I'm not kidding, folks. I'm not kidding. Here's a true Christian, and over here's a true Christian, and this one has such animosity to this other person. It is written all over their body language. It is written all over their countenance. Literally, this Christian will go out of their way to avoid that other Christian. But the worst thing is, they've never told them what they've done against them. They have all this animosity. They dodge it again. A whole if that person even gets it, like oh, totally, like what's the matter? What did they do? Oh, it's bad. What did they do? Why haven't you told them? What chapter and verse would you take to... Oh, I don't have a chapter and verse. Well, then maybe you need to get over some things. You're the problem. Just skipping verse 15 is not an option. It makes a mess. Christians are walking all around Anderson County, hopping from church to church, making, leaving fires behind them everywhere they go, leaving destruction. What the Lord is saying is don't be that kind of Christian. Number two, step two... If they refuse, then you get one or two witnesses to go with you to help settle the offense. I'm going to say this over and over. Remember the goal all along is to restore the brother or sister, to win them. What is important when choosing your witness or your witness says, don't just pick your best friend that you've coached the story. Now here's what's happened, right? You're on my side, right? Okay, good. Okay. We're doing verse 16. We're going to do what the Bible... no. Your witness needs to be two things. They need to be a mature spiritual Christian and they need to be unbiased. You say, why is that important? Because they're actually, may have to end up speaking. They're not just listening according to verse 17 because verse 17 starts says, if he refuses to listen to them. So that means, yeah, they start as a witness. Oh, by the way, your, your witnesses do not have to have, have witnessed the event. All they need to witness is the second meeting. And they need to go in unbiased because you may be the one that's in the wrong. And they, may, they need to be mature enough to say, yeah, I actually have to listen. Man, they've got a great spirit. I think you're the one that needs to get a forgiving spirit. You're kind of the, like, what? I didn't bring you here to say that. You're on my side. Like, well, you, you ask me. Pick the right people. Don't just pick somebody that's going to side with you. Keep their mind open. Pick someone who can give wise counsel. Step three. Write this down. What if they still, the wise counselor, listens? It happens just like I thought. Like I've said, their testimony matches mine. This person's unrepented. They've committed the sin. They like that it hurt me. Then step three must take place. Take the issue to the church if they still refuse. And I'm going to say it again and again. The goal all along remains To restore the brother or sister in Christ. Now, I read this over and over, and I try to think out practically what this would look like. There is an implied gap of time in verse 17, potentially. Do y'all see it? You've gone one on one, it didn't work. You've taken one or two with you, try to reconcile, it. it still didn't work. You bring the issue to the church. Now, picture that we're bringing an issue here to Graceview, and there's a situation. The likelihood that the person who is unrepentant at this point actually comes and faces the church family is probably not very high. If they have that much courage, praise the Lord, that's a lot of courage. If at that point it's laid out there, this person says this, this person says that, then the family should be in prayerful consideration of what the Word of God says, and they should start being able to give input. Hopefully the person repents but it may be that they don't. But what if the person's not even here on the day that it is presented? Then I think verse 17a implies a gap of time to allow God's people to then go reach out to that person. They should go after that. I thought of this. Jeff, if you're the one out in sin, how powerful would it be if multiple of God's people start reaching out to me in love, wooing me back and, and Trying to say, listen, what's it going to take? Don't live that kind of life. We want to bring you back here. We love you, brother. Please. What can we, and you need to. This is just not an option. I thought you was a Christian. That should be very powerful in my life. You say, well, what if they still don't respond and repent and it's clearly sin? Well, that takes us to step four. If the person still refuses to repent, then they must be removed from the church's fellowship. And this is what we call the severe portion of church discipline. Really, church discipline has been going. Church discipline is the one-on-one, the two and three gathering together with the other person. But if it gets to this point, then a specific step of church discipline, and this is what the Lord has laid out for us here in verse 17, second part of the verse. Jeff, why do they have to be removed from the fellowship? Let me give you a few reasons. Number one, their sinful influence needs to be removed from the family because sin spreads like leaven. Their divisive influence. Do you guys know that when someone refuses to get things right with another person, it's going to affect the body. It is going to affect the body. And so what needs to happen is this one's trying to do everything that's possible to create harmony, and they're eagerly trying to maintain the unity of the family, Ephesians 4, but this person refuses to do it. So that one needs to be put out of the family. Here's another reason. If this Christian is just insisting on living a life of sin, they're sending the wrong message to the community around us, and they're they're making the Lord's name be drug through the mud, and so they need to have that title removed from them. If someone that they work with is like, are you still doing that? I thought you was a Christian. I am. But what do other Christians say? Oh, I'm a member down at Graceview. Are they okay with that? They're fine. Everybody knows. No. It isn't fine because that tells a lost world that there's no change in a Christian's life, and that's just not true. That leads to the third reason why this person needs to be removed from the fellowship. This is a big one. It's to clearly let them know that as best we can tell as a church family, you are behaving and living like an unsaved person. You are to us as a Gentile and a tax collector. It does not say that if he refuses to listen even to the church, he is a Gentile and a tax collector. It says he is to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Jeff, what's your point? Here's my point. What a church decides and comes to a conclusion if it has to remove a professed Christian from its fellowship and say, in essence, you're acting like an unbeliever and our membership is for believers only... That is not the final word on this person's eternal destiny. That doesn't mean, well, the church has deemed them. We don't excommunicate in that sense. The Catholic church is wrong on that. Ultimately, the Lord knows this person's condition, and he will do what it takes. If they're truly saved, they will not perish according to verse 14. But what that means is the church saying all that we have to go on is the evidence that we've seen, and you are behaving and acting like an unbeliever. Here's I'm going to give you one more reason. It's not on your handout. Here's why that's important. Do you guys know that Anderson County is filled with people who in their heart of hearts, if you were to ask them, why do you think you're going to heaven when you die? What do you think it takes to have a relationship with God and live with him forever in heaven, have your sins forgiven? They'll start talking about baptism and church membership. Listen, there are people in Anderson County who live in sin. I'm not talking about commit sins. Their life is sin, and every now and then they do something for the Lord. Basically, their whole tone of life has no desire and hunger for God. They live selfish and sinful lives, but they honestly in their heart think they're going to heaven when they die. And when you ask them, it's because I'm a church member. Well, that needs ripped away so that their unbelief is exposed, and so their little security blanket of church membership is taken away so that they ultimately should walk away saying, what is wrong with me? That person confronted me, two or three other good, solid Christians saying, I'm out of line. A whole church body says, I'm out of line. Am I out of line? Am I even a Christian? Now, that's the purpose of church discipline, to make the person wake up like, am I right? And the goal is always to restore or maybe even to win an unbeliever who's been faking it and pretending. Now, we're getting ready to hit several verses. Four passages, two of them large, and I'm going to fly through. I'm not going to get bogged down. The goal is not to uncover all that's in these texts. The goal is for this thought. I don't normally hit as many verses as we have this week. I'm doing it this week because we may think, Jeff, that's just so unnatural, and I just don't think that's really what the Lord means by that, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. I don't think it means break fellowship. Well, let's find out what the rest of the New Testament says. Go if you would, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians 5, you're going to want to flip there in your Bible. Go ahead and warn you, we're going to read the whole 13 verses here, just to get a feel for it. I told you to spend a lot longer on the first point than the second. 1 Corinthians 5, the first of four passages. and I want you to just kind of feel what the situation is and what Paul says to do. Paul is in another city writing back to the Corinthian church. These are real people. It's a real city. 2,000 years ago, they had issues. He's going through the issues. Chapter 5 is one of the main issues. Verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Can you imagine a church that has sexual? Uh, Yeah, I can. It's 2021 United States of America. Sexual immorality, fornication and adultery, unfortunately, is rampant in churches. What are we supposed to be doing? He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. Even the world doesn't put up with this. For a man has his father's wife. But here's the bigger problem. Not not the bigger. (coughs) Excuse me. Here's another problem. You are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? He's talking to the Corinthians. You think God's okay with it. You're just going through like no big deal. We don't need to do anything. Yeah, we know that that's going on. You're arrogant. Ought you not, to rather, ought not rather to mourn? Watch the end of verse 2. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Paul says, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. He's like, I'm not there, and I don't need to be there to know what needs to be done. Verse 4 is very clear. This is a church-wide decision. When you are assembled... It's like when the church gets together, literally do this. Matthew 18, verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Like bad physical things happen to him, maybe even get killed. Really? Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Literally what the church is supposed to do is remove, like literally take a vote to remove God. We now remove this person from our fellowship and the protection of the fellowship. We're moving them outside of that. Lord, you have your perfect way in their life. And the idea that I think is being implied here is if this person really is a child of God, they should now expect harsh discipline to start coming in their life because they put off the other discipline that was less harsh. They did away with it, did away with it, did away with it. All right now you're out and it's going to get heavy might even be killed First John now verse 6 your boasting is not good church do you not know that a little leaven leaven's the whole lump you remember the Passover when the children of Israel were going to celebrate the very first Passover and all subsequent ones since then they're to get rid of all leavened bread in the house and only have unleavened bread because in this case leaven represents like sin and how sin s- spreads and permeates He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole up? In other words, get this out of your assembly. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Hey, you really are unleavened. You don't have sin, church. How do we not have sin? For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He paid for our sins on the cross. We don't have sin. Therefore, verse 8, let us therefore celebrate the festival. Yay, I have this great salvation. I can never go to heaven. I think I'm going to go out and commit all this sin. Because I can't lose my salvation. Wrong answer. Verse 8. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Verse 9. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter. That tells me 1 Corinthians is not 1 Corinthians. See it? Verse 9. 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians, but the true 1 Corinthians was not inspired by God. The Second Corinthians, we call First Corinthians, is inspired by God. What we call Second Corinthians is actually First Corinthians because Third Corinthians was also not inspired by God, but great letters. Verse number nine. Now that you're confused, go back to verse nine. I wrote to you in my letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world. Apparently, when he wrote that, they took oh. Don't hang around with sexually immoral people out in the world. He says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. I can't buy groceries over there. Why that guy? He's, he's a drunk. Get gas over there. Why? Because he does that and that and that. Okay? I can't go to that restaurant. Okay, where can you go? I pretty much can't go anywhere. Can you go get me some food? Because I don't want to be out. There's swindlers and all that. Paul's like, no, that, we expect that of them We expect that of them. I mean, really, come on, guys. Sexual immorality in America in 2021, I expect it. You have no chance if you don't have the Holy Spirit inside you, but we expect different of those who have the Holy Spirit. Verse 11. But now I am writing to you, apparently, it wasn't clear enough in the first letter. Now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. In other words, if somebody's going to say, you say, Jeff, does just saying you're a Christian and joining a church, that's the game changer? That's the game changer. If you're going to join the church and you're going to get baptized and say, I'm a Christian, and then you're going to go out and do these things, then we're going to respond differently to that person than we would even to an unsaved person. We expect that of the unsaved person. So what is the response to the one who says they're a brother in Christ? Not my words. This is what Paul says that matches Matthew 18. Look at the very last line of verse 11. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is, not, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Wait a minute. Time out, Matthew 7. One judge not that you be not ju- Now You've got to take the whole thing. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Now here, listen. Purge the evil person from among you. Well, that's just Paul mad at the Corinthians. No. Second Thessalonians, flip over there. Different issue here. Different issue. Second Thessalonians. So there's, there's, a, there's a big passage out of the four that we want to look at. This one's the next big one. And then there'll be two very brief ones. And then we'll move on to our second point. Look at chapter, or Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Here we go. Paul says to the, I've been in this city. Now we command you, brothers, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you, watch these words, keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. So what's the big sin here that we're getting ready to read about? Idleness. What does that mean? Keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Paul spent weeks in Thessalonica training them. Verse 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, me and Silas and Luke and Timothy. What do you mean, Paul? Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, Paul is saying, and he also says this first Corinthians nine. As the man of God, he has the right to receive a salary. But while he was in Thessalonica, apparently the Thessalonians had a, a habit and a, and a reputation of being very lazy. And they didn't want to go work jobs. And they just wanted other people to pay the way for them. And so Paul says, when I'm there, I'm not, I'm not going to live on other people's money. I'm not going to live on your, on your money. I'm going to go work night and day as a leather worker to pay my own way. And you need to do that. And apparently didn't do it because he's fussing at them. In 2 Thessalonians, some of them are still not working. Verse 9, it's not because we do not have the right, but to, give you our, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear, you know people bail other people out too much and let them be lazy. That's what this text means. Verse 11, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies, doing stupid stuff instead of going out and using their energy to work a job. Amen, Jeff. All right, thanks. Verse 12. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, the ones who are doing it right, do not grow weary in doing good. Jeff, it's hard. Jeff, you know right here, right now, they got folks that are able-bodied and there's jobs everywhere and they're just drawing a check, and I'm over here working and getting paid less than if I just stayed home and draw a check. You keep doing what's right, and they're going to answer to God. People need to get back to work in America. Verse 13, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy. Warn him as a brother. What's the matter with you? I can't find a job. I'm not talking about you literally lost a job. And you're working as hard as you can to get in. I'm talking about there are people able-bodied, letting other people foot the bill for them. They can get out and work, and there's opportunity all around them, and they're just doing nothing. Because we can. Look, Jeff, we can. We expect that of the world, not God's people. Come on. We're better than that. That was not the message today. Now let's get back on point. First Timothy. Flip over to First Timothy. First Timothy chapter 5. Verse 19, just a quick point to make it clear. Do not admit, this sounds like Matthew 18, do not admit a charge against an elder. That's an elder pastor, bishop. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. One person can't just like slander pastor, bishop, elder, leader among God's people. But, verse 20, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. But if there's two or three witnesses, verse 20 says, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Elders, pastors, bishops who get involved in sexual sin, who get involved in being drunkards, who are lazy, lording, abusive, need called out. If they keep on doing it, They need to call it out in public so that everybody else will come to this conclusion. Man, they even rebuke like the pastor? Yeah. Nobody's off limits. We're here to help each other. You do it in love. I don't know that I want that kind of love. No, we need this kind of love. This is is good love. One more. Flip a couple pages. Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Look at verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies. Avoid foolish controversies arguing about stuff that doesn't matter, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. Avoid them. Don't keep making it go that way. Ask for the person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice. Watch what the text says. Have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Now I had all those texts read Listen to phrases from that text. From those four passages. 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 Timothy 5, and Titus 3. Listen to these phrases. And Matthew. Let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Be removed from among you. Deliver this man to Satan. Not to associate with. Not even to eat with such. Keep away from. Take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. Rebuke him in the presence of all. Avoid such. That meal, I hope I'm not out of line here. I know it means don't even have a meal where you're just like fellowshipping with them. I just want to fellowship with them. Nope. They're to be separated. So do we never reach out? Oh, we do keep reaching out. As the Lord leads you, you continue to reach out. But it's a firm love that praying for you, the Lord may, uh, and Paul may Say, I'm out of line. I don't know that this means, hey, I want to meet you over at Starbucks. Can we do that? Just give me 15 minutes of your time. And you're sitting there, and they got a cup of coffee, and you got one. And you're like, brother, we just miss you. just want you to know, still praying, where are you at? I don't know that it's saying don't do that. But here's what we know. And I said this almost word for word last week. If a professed believer continues to wallow in known sin after repeated wooings and warnings with no remorse... Then all we can do is assume that they're not truly saved. And one of the reasons we join a church is so that we help hold each other accountable. As has been said, we join a church so that if we have to, they can kick us out. Second point, Matthew. Number two, the God-given authority of the church. Now you read this, and this is kind of familiar to us, and you think, man, if he spent all that time on those verses, we're probably going to be alone. Okay, nope, because here's my main thought. These verses are actually an extension of the first three. They're not separate. Verse 18 is clear. Look at it. The God given authority of the church to do what we just read in all those passages. Verse 18 says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind the Lord's telling, you remember it? Who who did he first say this to? Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Who was first told those words two chapters earlier? specifically to Peter, and now we know that it is extending to the disciples. So Peter was initially told, Who do you say that out? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood's not shown this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And he goes on and says, You are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. And I give unto you the keys to the kingdom. And whatsoever you bind shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose shall be loosed in heaven. But that was two chapters ago in 16. Now we know in chapter 18, verse number 1, Jesus is talking to the disciples. But now we also know it's not just the disciples. Verse number 17 has now brought in, verse 16 and 17, has now brought in the church. And so what was just said in verse 17 applies even to the church. The Holy Spirit is going to come and enjoy the church, which he has now done, leaving us at this point, truly I say to you... Whatever you bind on earth... It's not just a thing for Peter. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Quick note. This is review. To bind meant to forbid something. Whatever you bind, whatever you forbid will be forbidden and bound in heaven. To loose means to permit something, to allow something. So the Lord is telling. He had told Peter. He's telling the disciples. And by extension, he's including the church. What you forbid... What you allow and permit will be, have been forbidden and allowed in heaven. Now, some of you have the ESV in front of you like I do, and you have a little note at the bottom of your page that talks about that phrase because we're not looking at... I'm sorry to get grammatical. After all I've said, I'm going to have to do it just for a moment, and you need to hang with me. We're not just talking about future verbs here. This is not just future tense verbs This verse is on you. Raise your hand if you have an ESV note at the bottom of your page. Do you all see how it's translated? You see it down there? What it says is what it means. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So Jeff, what's the difference? What does it mean? I have R.T. Francis' name in a note This is not a quote. That's why there's no quotes. I'm going to take what he said two chapters ago. I'm just transplanting it because it's the same truth. And I'm going to to take out the word Peter, and I'm going to insert the idea of the church or God's people. And then we're moving on from verse 18. So get it the first time. What does verse 18 mean? France gives this idea. I'm paraphrasing. So just hear it. It's going to take a minute to get to your, your quote. Get you. With simple future tense verbs, the church would take the initiative and heaven would follow the church if it was just future tense verbs. But it's not. These are future perfect tense verbs. That's where it's not just whatever you bind, whatever you loose, it's whatever you bind will have been bound, will have been. Loosed. So he continues. With, perfect, with future perfect tense verbs, the impression of this text is that when the church makes its decision about church discipline, when the church makes it, its decision, it will be found to have already been made in heaven. Making this text and this idea or making the church not the initiator of new directions, but rather making the church the faithful stewards of God's prior decisions. I'm getting ready to say it more clear right here. So hear it before you write it. With that in mind, the saying now becomes a promise, not of divine endorsement. Hey, church, whatever y'all want to do, God's not up there playing video games. <laughs> What'd they do this time? That's ah, fine. Endorse it. We're good. That's not what's happening. Whatever you buy and whatever you lose, I'll sign off on it. I'm busy. No, no, no. The same becomes a promise not of divine endorsement, but of divine. It's a promise of divine guidance to enable God's people to decide according to God's already determined purpose. In other words, you surrender to what verses 19 and 20 tell you to do, and you just really get on board with God's will, seek His face on it, and the Lord will make you arrive at the decisions you need to arrive at when it comes to matters of church discipline. Hopefully that makes sense because my time is about run out. About. Now, quickly, verse 19, and some of you are thinking, man, these, are, these two verses here are very, very famous. I hear them all the time. We'll be here a long time. Nope, because you go home and study them out, and that's fine. Because I needed to put the time in the other parts, we're going to look at verse 19 and 20 as an extension of the first four verses as evidenced by the word again. You see that? You see the word again? So he says, church, step one, step two, three, four. If it gets that bad, they become to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. You have the authority to do this. You do what verse 19 and 20 says, and you'll arrive at the right conclusions. Now, you can mess it up, but you've got to arrive at the right conclusions by doing what? And God will have directed it all along. And you'll be actually on earth fulfilling God's will. Watch verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth, hey, guys, listen. The Bible makes a lot of powerful promises about prayer. And this is a promise about prayer, but it has a context. Its context is in relation to church discipline. This is not a blank check where a couple of Christians can get together and agree. We're agreeing, and we're praying, and our team's going to win the championship because we're agreeing. Yeah, well, so are a couple of guys on the other team. They, Christians over there are agreeing in prayer, and they're claiming, Matthew 18, 19, it's going to happen. That's why I put $1,000 down on it. Like, what happened? God's word's not true. No. Me and his brother, we agreed, and we went and bought a lottery ticket, and we just knew that we were going to win, and it didn't happen. The Bible's a lie. No, that's not the context here. Context is key. So, Jeff, what is the context? Write this down. The word again. Indicates that verse 19 is actually reinforcing verse 18, and here's what it means. When the church seeks specific guidance from God about matters of church discipline, through prayer and through searching God's Word, God is going to give wisdom and guidance. That's what it means. You get together, you and your brother and sister in Christ, or the whole congregation, and you really seek the Lord's face and surrender to do His will... Get into his word. and You say, Jeff, it doesn't say anything about the word of God having to be consorted in the text. The text is the word of God. It is the word of God. All those passages I just read is our authority to take those actions. So we look at the text and we look into the word of God and we find what God calls for. Borrow from Wearsby one more time. Catch this. He says, church discipline. Verse 19, you see it? Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, the context is about church discipline. It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Wearsby writes, Church discipline does not refer to a group of Christian policemen throwing their weight around. Rather, it means, hear the humility here, it means God exercising His authority in and through a local body to restore one of His erring children. Not only must there be the authority of the word. Got Bible, brother. I'm ready to go. What time is our meeting? I'm ready. Give me a piece of my mind. I got, I got passages ready. I've done that before. Made a mess. He says, the church must agree. No, back up. Not only must there be the authority of the word, but there must also be prayer. The church must agree in prayer as it seeks to discipline the erring member. It is through prayer and the Word that we ascertain the will of the Father in the matter. Let me ask you all a quick question. Here's the Word of God, and over here's prayer. Which one is more objective? One is more objective, one's more subjective, one's more objective. Prayer and the Word of God. Which one's more objective? The Word. I mean, you can point, and we can all agree that is what that says. Prayer, I feel led this. Well, I'm kind of thinking that, and I think this, and this timing is the best. Those are the ones that I should go and talk to them. That should, okay. But the point being, though the word is more subjective, here's all I know is the Lord is saying, don't just have the word. It needs the word and prayer. And those need to come together and feather together, and that's your safe ground. So I finished there with verse 20. Look at verse 20. It's very short, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. For where two or three are gathered in my name. You know how we usually use that? We got a little home Bible study. We got Wednesday night Bible study, Wednesday night prayer meeting. Not as many people show up as you were hoping, but that's okay. Where two or three are gathered, Jesus is in our midst. That is absolutely true, but I didn't need Matthew 18 to tell me that because the Holy Spirit came in me. And if I get one other Christian there, he came in you too. We already have it. We didn't need to. Again, context is key. What is the context? The main purpose, the main purpose, not to say that we're wrong when we do that, it is absolutely true. The church that has 5,000 people meeting today, it's full of Christians, the Lord is meeting with them. Us here today, the Lord is meeting with us, absolutely true. But the main purpose of this verse is to encourage churches who are wrestling with situations of difficult, Church discipline and the difficult task of that. What the Lord is saying is, I'm with you in that process if you do it in my name. This is important. What does in my name mean? It means you come knowing that through me you get access to the Father's wisdom. And if you're going to really pray in my name, you should be seeking my will to be done, not coming with your pre-made, mind-made-up plan. You're going to get my will, and you have confidence that you can go to the Father. God, we need you to direct in this situation. We do not want to make a mess of it that's what verse 19 means verse 20 19 and 20 so kind of in conclusion i could say this the two or three in verse 20 i'll tell you who they are the two or three in verse 19 and 20 are the two people in verse 16 who have to go back the two or three it's this person Who originally confronted got rejected they bring a witness or maybe two here comes two or three in the name of christ seeking the lord they have the authority to say brother you're on wrong ground you need to repent i'm not going to do it then we're going to take it to the church they have the authority to do that further i'll go here this is the most encouraging one the two or three the two in verse 19 you want to know who they really are it's the two people back in verse 15 It's the sinning brother and the confronting brother. They get together. This one repents. Well, I guess we better go tell everybody else. And I've just got to go public and really get on my face and and just air it all out. No, 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 brother. You don't have to do that. You and I can agree and pray about this and get this in the word of God and God's will. And it's settled right here. And I don't need to go tell anyone else. Just turn from your sin. Well, I like that option. That's your two or three gathered in my name. So Wednesday nights... You see, Jeff, we've got one more note. Here it is. Wednesday nights, I often make our table assignments interactive. If you've been there, if this scares you off, you, you need to repent. <laughs> if you've been there, you're like, yep, we're kind of every other week pattern. This week there's a VBS meeting, so there's, we're not doing Fleeman this week. We often make them interactive on purpose. Why? I want us to get to know each other. I want all of us to get to know all of us. Why? I'm going to give you four reasons. If we do not know each other, we're not going to know when one of us strays from the Lord. Number two, if we do not know each other and we hear that one of us is straying from the Lord, we're not going to care like we should. I don't really know. Who is it again? Where do they sit? Number three, if we don't know each other and we hear that one of us is straying from the Lord, we're going to lack the courage that we should have to actually go confront the sinning brother or sister. Uh, I'm not doing that. I don't really know them. I'm telling you the facts. This is why we do stuff. This is why we need to get together, get to know each other, not just the same small few people. We all need to know. How are we going to know who's in sin? How are we going to care if they're out in sin? How are we going to have the courage and the boldness? And oh, by the way, If I'm the sinning brother or sister, or you're the sinning brother or sister, the church's greatest recourse is to say, we're going to have to remove you from the fellowship. Now listen, if the fellowship is not a valuable part of my life, then you're not threatening me with anything. You know what I'll do? If I'm not connected to God's body and the big threat is, you're not going to be allowed to be part of our fellowship. I'm going to do what Christians do all over Anderson County, which is what? I'm just going to the next church for my singing and sermons. And I'm not going to get things right. So your last note is this. I'm afraid many people intentionally stay unconnected to avoid accountability when they fall into sin. And they just hop to the next church. Rather than face discipline. Well, and I'll just leave. You said, Jeff, have you ever seen that? Absolutely. I know of situations where people are in clear sin. The Bible is clear. It is not gray. It is black and white. And their solution is, I don't want to deal with it. And they're just over here. And I know that, how that ends. They'll end up ultimately just hopping in somewhere else, not telling the full story. That's why when you join a church, and if you ever leave that church, they need to communicate back to the previous church before you just hop and join over there. Because maybe they're going to call that other church and go, yeah, they never got things right over here. Good luck. They're divisive. What? Yeah, that's what we're supposed to do. Thank you, Brother Archie. He's a pastor. Just before we close our heads, close our eyes, bow our heads. Don't close your head. Can I say it this way, guys? God, listen carefully. God is glorified. (sighs) You remember my fear at the beginning? Unsaved person thinks that's what Christianity is all about. Okay, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. We're saved by grace. We don't go to hell because God forgives our sin. We do not go to heaven because we live righteous lives. But God wants us to live righteous lives. God says, be ye holy as I am holy. This guy sins a lot. I have to repent and confess a lot. Every day I commit sin. It's horrible. But I need to keep short accounts, and if I don't keep short accounts with God, and I start wallowing in sin, you need to come help me. And I'm supposed to do the same with you. The Lord is calling us. Now, listen, he's glorified when we reflect his holiness in a dark, sinful world. It's dark out there. We're supposed to be different. The darker they get, the more brightly our light is to shine when we live differently. But here's what sin wants to do. You've seen it over and over. Sin wants to isolate you. It wants to cut you off. It wants to isolate you from experiencing the love of God. That never stops. It never stops. It wants to make you think the love of God has stopped. And sin wants to separate you from the fellowship of God's people. It happens inevitably. People start getting out of sin. They don't keep coming to the house of God. They start straying off. Don't let that happen. Stay connected with God's people. Don't let sin isolate you. Go back to the two things I said earlier and then We'll bow our heads. Be working and let the Lord be purifying you personally. That's your main thing. And then be willing as needed to step into someone else's life and speak the truth in love with humility. Not just truth. Honesty without humility. Humility first and then honesty. Heads bowed just for a moment. Heads bowed. Can I ask you just a few questions? The first one is not a question, it's a statement. It's a plea. Grace for you. Please, all of us, make it a point of emphasis in your life to connect with our body. Make it a point. How will we know when each other stray? We will not care when each other stray. We will not have courage and boldness to go after each other when we stray. And there's no threat there's no teeth in the discipline if my church family is not valuable. So can I say it this way? Stay connected with our body as much as you can, not as least as you can. Some people are doing like the least they can do and still be part of a membership, part of a fellowship. No, do the most you can. I'm not going to guilt you with amounts. As most you can, get connected. Get connected. We have life groups that meet at 9:30. Can you come an hour earlier? We meet on Wednesday nights. If you're watching online, is it time? I'm asking. I'm just asking, not stating. I'm asking, is it time to get back physically with God's people? Can you take steps to make it the most safe for you to return? And then just before we pray, here we go. Here's the questions. You ready? Bring the Lord into view and ask the Holy Spirit to be shining His light brightly on these questions. Number one, have you sinned against anyone? Are you the person in verse 15 that committed the sin? So here's the question Do you need to preempt someone else coming to you? Like, you know what? I did that. I don't need to wait on them and come let me know. I know what I did and I need to go apologize and get it right. If you need to do that, then do it. Second question. This won't be everybody, it's gonna be somebody. Is today the day that you need to release the debt on someone because it's not worth it? It's not so massive that you can't forgive it. You don't even need to meet. You just need to let it go. Maybe it's not even sin. Maybe it's just your preference. Maybe it irritated you, annoyed you. Maybe it's your rules that they didn't live by, and those are not God's rules. And the Lord spoke to you this morning like, you know what? Yeah, it's time. I'm right now, God, with your help, I'm letting this go. I'm releasing that debt. I am stopped holding a grudge against this person. Number three, does anybody here, don't raise your hand, just answer between you and the Lord. Does anybody here, you say, I need to repent of my gossip. I didn't have the guts to go talk to the person who offended me. But boy, I sure talked to some, somebody else. And all that did was create gossip. Now they're mad at them too. And it has nothing to do with them. And I need to repent of that. And I even need to go and tell that person, I'm sorry for dragging them into this. And then two more. Here it is. Do you need to confront someone about their sin? A saved person. You know they're in sin. They say they're a Christian. Is it time that in humility, you need to go be honest. In humility, prayerfully, prayerfully, just you and them. And then lastly, do you need to break fellowship with someone and you've just failed to do it? You keep softening the landing. God's people have moved away from someone in sin and you're still propping them up. If that is you that needs to break that fellowship, let them know clearly why and let them know you're going to be praying for them and that you're there when they're ready to repent and come back to the Lord. But you can't just keep hanging out and fellowshipping with them as though everything's fine. If they were an unbeliever, you could minister to them evangelistically. But they're pretending to be a Christian. And if they are a Christian, they're living the wrong life. Is it time? So, Father, as we dismissed today Lord you, you know this text and Lord I pray Lord I pray where I really messed it up and mangled it and interpreted it incorrectly that that will fall on deaf ears and somehow be edited out of a recording but Lord where this was accurate and needed by us I pray that you'll give us courage but love, lots of love and humility to take the steps you call us to do Lord keep us pure, let our fellowship be sweet and unhindered May we be eager to maintain the unity at Graceview. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.